SCP-7354, The Cruor Pool. The SCP Foundation isn't generally in the business of killing anomalous things as soon as they appear, as that sort of goes against the whole secure, contain, protect motto. Sometimes though, they're left with little choice, as certain anomalies are mindless hostile threats, and trying to contain them would be foolhardy. SCP-7354 has not just one of these types of anomalies, but plenty, with more and more coming as time goes on, and it might just get out of hand before long. It's not only a sequel to SCP-7376, Kayan and Havel, continuing that storyline, but it's also a bit of a remix of SCP-354, The Red Pool. Let's take a look. SCP-7354 is an approximately 10 meter by 18 meter basin filled with human blood, which was discovered on January 7th, 2009 in Irkutsk Oblast, Russia, during a surveying expedition. The basin contains a multifaceted spatial anomaly that prevents its contents from seeping into the surrounding soil and dramatically increases its internal dimensions. Ground-penetrating radar scans of its interior have not yielded any conclusive data. The anomaly's enclosure adjoins a building complex that bears Foundation insignias, which appears to have been built at some point in the mid-1950s, although no documentation has been found of such construction taking place. At irregular intervals, highly complex carnomantic constructs, meaning entities linked to sarkic magic, coalesce within the pool. These are invariably aggressive and physically resilient, with most of the manifestation events on record having resulted in structural damage to the building complex and or casualties among personnel. Over the years, the average length of time between manifestations has been decreasing. We're given a short list of various manifestation events over a two-year period, starting with the first recorded one in January of 2009. A large bat-like creature with a wingspan of 4.1 meters emerged from the pool, with a mass of serpents protruding from its torso in place of legs. It was capable of spitting an extremely caustic fluid from a far distance, and it screamed loudly without stopping. It was shot out of the air using an anti-aircraft rifle before being neutralized by an MTF, with standard corrosive and incendiary weaponry as it attempted to regenerate. Another entity, two months later, is described as looking like a cross between an echidna and a sun bear, with it being largely unaffected by gunfire and possessing quills coated in a rapidly progressing neurotoxin. This fact was only discovered several hours after neutralization, as the toxin was transdermally active, and victims only began to show symptoms after significant exposure had occurred. It successfully broke through the northern wall of the enclosure, charging through an adjacent hall and injuring several staff members before being neutralized with corrosive and incendiary weaponry. A month and a half later, a levitating chitinous sphere with a diameter of 2.6 meters emerged from the pool, possessing several large eyes irregularly spaced across its surface. When an eye was destroyed, another opened elsewhere along the entity's surface within a few seconds. 
Any complex living organism that the entity focused one of its eyes on suffered from rapid tumor growth, and it proved to be largely unaffected by most forms of weaponry. It was eventually neutralized via multiple sledgehammer strikes by an agent who lacked enough organic components to be harmed by the tumor growth, Agent Stone, although upon neutralization the entity exploded and doused the agent with a caustic fluid, severely damaging him. Later, a 4.8 meter tall reptilian humanoid capable of healing its wounds with unprecedented speed, regenerating organs, limbs, and portions of its own brain within a few seconds. Corrosive and incendiary weaponry, which has normally proven to counteract the various entities self-repairing, was insufficient against this creature. It managed to breach containment within 15 minutes, escaping into the surrounding forest. The stationary task force wasn't going to be able to stop it before it reached a civilian population center, so MTF Alpha 7, Last Chance, was dispatched to neutralize it. Alpha 7 is an MTF operated by the Emergent Threat Tactical Response Authority that was specifically set up to utilize SCP-7376-A in combat scenarios, an ancient humanoid entity associated with sarcasm known as Havel, or Abel. After terminating the anomaly, Abel remarked that the carnomancy animating it was strange, but could not verbalize its observations with greater detail. Other members of the team noted that Abel appeared visibly unsettled for the rest of the day. Five weeks later, a 3.7 meter long arachnid with two large human mouths on its back and multiple prehensile tube-like appendages coming out of its stomach emerged from the pool. It escaped the enclosure shortly after, displaying a higher degree of intelligence than previously manifested entities, setting up ambushes and traps using nearly transparent webbing. On several occasions, it would extend its extra appendages into its victim's ears forcibly removing their brain and ingesting it, at which point its human mouths would begin repeating the victim's deepest secrets in their native tongue. Not only did this cause some small amount of discord among the task force at the site, but the anomaly also managed to grab a foundation higher up that was visiting the site for an unscheduled inspection. Upon taking his brain, it proceeded to repeat several pieces of highly classified information. The entity was eventually neutralized through usage of corrosive and incendiary weaponry, and all individuals present were administered Class C amnestics. A few weeks later, two humanoids of indeterminate ethnicity, conjoined at several points on their bodies, emerged from the pool. It was fired upon shortly after manifesting, and expired almost immediately. A medical examination performed afterwards revealed that aside from the physical abnormalities, the entity was identical to baseline human beings. The data on the next seven manifestations is lost, but the 14th entity, emerging in January of 2010, was a cephalopodic entity of unknown size and appearance. Its manifestation went unnoticed at first, as it remained submerged in the pool and over the course of several hours it slowly extended numerous tentacles outwards, moving them beneath the newly fallen snow in the enclosure to avoid detection from the cameras. It proceeded to squeeze its tentacles into various tiny cracks, 
and faults in the enclosure's walls that had formed from previous manifestation events and subsequent repairs, stretching them out into the site's foundation. Eventually, all of its tentacles began moving simultaneously, erupting from the ground to destroy large portions of the site all at once. The tentacles then retreated back into the pool after sustaining heavy damage from the task force, but not before dragging nine staff members into the pool. It and the missing personnel have not been seen since. A couple weeks later, a large feline entity resembling a panther emerges, its head and back covered in organic semi-transparent crystalline structures analogous in appearance to ice. Light that passes through any of the structures is given cognitohazardous properties. This was joined by a massive feline entity resembling a lion, 8.8 meters tall and covered in a chitinous exoskeleton. Its blood was superheated to the point that contact with unprotected skin caused third-degree burns. These were joined by a fully organic replica of Agent Stone, and whenever this entity suffered an injury that lowered its body mass, any separated portions of its body weighing at least 5 kilograms would grow and metamorphose into a duplicate of itself while it regenerated. Thankfully, the duplicated copies didn't share this trait, otherwise it would have easily led to an NK-class Grey Goo scenario. Obviously, that was quite the situation for the site to handle, but before we're given some details about it, we're provided a note from the director of the Thaumatology Department about Carnomancy, the thaumaturgical discipline utilized by the Nalka, also known as the Sarkites. In it, he writes that, as far as schools of thaumaturgy go, carnomancy is rather predictable, as it's grounded in physical principles like alchemy. If you want a carnomantic construct to have structure, you need a bit of bone. Strength requires muscle fiber, intelligence requires neural tissue, and so on. This pool seems to have missed that memo, and he's not just talking about how it's been able to make all of this with only blood. The entities that emerge from the pool, going by their current understanding of Nalkin Carnomancy, shouldn't be possible. They've seen these constructs use Carnomancy in ways that they thought only Karsis could handle, including levitation, tumor generation through line of sight, near instantaneous regeneration, and so on. This doesn't just make them dangerous, it makes them unpredictable, and every manifestation event is another curveball. You can't contain what you can't prepare for. At first they believed that the pool's carnomancy was different, altered in some way, and assumed that an additional anomalous force was at play, perhaps justifiably based on previous Sarkic anomalies such as SCP-2480, an unfinished ritual. To sum up months of research that they spent to prove just that, they were wrong. They have no idea how or why the pool does what it does, and they have no idea what it's going to do next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 
During the incident, the three entities manifested within 28 minutes of one another, resulting in the third most severe containment breach since the crisis of 2001, when Henry Bow orchestrated a string of massive breaches, leading to the formation of Etra. Nearly 90% of the site's personnel were already deceased by the time MTF Alpha 7 arrived, and were given a short excerpt from one of the agent's body cameras. The ground is littered with bodies, both of Foundation personnel and duplicated entities, and loud impact sounds and organic tearing can be heard in the distance. The MTF lost Abel amidst the fighting, and his feed cut out, but they find a hole in the wall of a corridor that leads into the pool's enclosure. They remark that they were trying to keep Abel away from the pool, as Command doesn't want too much cross-contamination between Nalkin anomalies. The agent enters the enclosure, finding the ground covered in snow and chunks of inhuman gore, along with Abel kneeling at the edge of the pool. The agent calls out to him, saying that the captain wants him to keep checking for stragglers, but Abel doesn't move. Eventually, he says that it happened here, and this is Ion's grave and his blood. This is where he died, and he turns to the agent, showing him to be silently weeping. This is rather surprising, as not many articles mention Grand Carcist Ion ever dying, and were given some excerpts from a historical document written by one of Ion's clavigars, titled The Seventh Ordeal of Ion. They read, All the flowers bloomed the day wretched Vazjuma descended upon our world. It had not come in fullness, but in aspect, in avatar, for surely if the devourer had arrived in its entirety, the simple gravity of its terrible mass would have extinguished the sun. Even now I am not entirely certain what I saw. Vazjuma was a boiling sea of teeth, frothing with acid. It was a vast and detestable stomach. It was Yaldabaoth. Abandoning mortal form, the Ozermach's spirit filled the sky. In one hand he held a great flame, in another his staff of muscle and bone, and in yet another he carried an archon's heart. Grand Carcist Ion strode forth to meet his opponent. Ion and Vazjuma fought for eleven days and eleven nights. It was a horror to behold. Each strike lit up the heavens, each blow was heavy enough to shatter mountains, and still the Avatar was whole, unbroken, hungry. Ion saw the coming dawn of the twelfth day, and knew that he would not live to see its dusk. Ion mustered up all his strength, all his courage and cunning, every piece of himself that had not yet been devoured. He summoned up everything he was, had been, and would ever be, and set it all alight. In a thunderous explosion like none I've seen before or since, Ion split the firmament open and cast Vazjuma back into the void.
It's noted that the veracity of this document has been heavily disputed by members of the Church of the Broken God, who claim that it is propaganda that attempts to overwrite a historical battle between the Mechanite army and a colossal Nalkin beast called Lashrakal. They contend that Ion's death had actually taken place several months prior, at the hands of High Priest Bumaro, although Bumaro has not publicly confirmed or denied either account. Next we're given a brief conversation between Abel and an unknown individual, with Abel angry that they didn't tell him that the blood was becoming faster. The other says that they did tell him that, but he replies that they said the blood was growing more dangerous, saying nothing of speed. The distinction is very important, as the art of the Nalka is that of adaptation and evolution. It's only natural that the blood would hone its weapons over time, but after nearly 3000 years without Ion to sustain it, it should be getting slower instead of faster. Abel then asks them if they know what happens when you die, physically. The individual says that your body decomposes, and Abel says that it does, and in doing so it becomes a house for parasites and scavengers, with old life giving way to new. After a pause, he then asks if they know what happens when a god dies. The last thing we're provided then is a log of Exploratory Mission Delta, presumably the fourth attempted exploration of the pool's interior. It's explained that after the first two missions went awry, manned exploration was forbidden, so now they're trying one with an unmanned drone piloted by an AI. They also have learned that broadcasting footage of the trip itself is also dangerous, so instead the AI is instructed to simply describe what it sees. On the first day, the AI notes that due to the spatially anomalous nature of the pool, it will measure progress in days rather than meters, as it begins to travel downwards. Nothing of note takes place on the second day, but on the third it remarks that the color of the surrounding blood appears to be darkening in hue, going from a deep crimson to a shade of almost brown. This can't be due to a lack of natural light, as it has long passed that threshold. On the fourth day it continues to darken, becoming closer to black, and by the sixth day it's completely black, seeming to almost swallow up the light its floodlights produce. Nothing of note takes place on the following three days, but on the tenth day the AI notes that it has started to see little motes of light in the distance. It tried to follow one, but it never appeared to get any closer. It remarks that they remind it of something, but it can't figure out what. Nothing happens the next two days, but on the thirteenth day, the AI remembers what the motes of light reminded of. It compared the lights with photos in its internal database, finding the motes around it to be a one-to-one -one match to the stars in the night sky transposed into 360 degrees. If its instruments didn't inform it that it was still within a body of liquid, it might mistake its environment for the void of space. Nothing of note occurs for the next 12 days, and we're left with a single image, with the description of its context expunged from the record. 
The image is vague, but seems to consist of white clouds underneath a dark red sky, although the orientation and details are left only to our guesses. Alright, well, we're certainly not given a whole lot to go off of here. Based on Abel's comments, the red pool should be producing less and less entities as time goes on, since Ion's body has likely decayed away, but instead it's producing more and more of them. There's a couple of clues here I think we can work with though. Ion supposedly died giving everything he had and everything he would have to cast Vazjuma, or Yaldaboth, back into the void. Yaldaboth is the principal power in the universe in Sarkic mythology, responsible for creating all life through the process of devouring other gods and worlds and exhaling life into the cosmos. While Neo-Sarkites appear to admire Yaldaboth, most Sarkic scripture describes it as their true enemy. In the process of casting Yaldaboth back into the void, Ion died and created the Red Pool with his blood. It's notable that the AI during its exploration matched the small motes of light it saw to stars in the night sky, and specifically referred to it as being similar to the Void of Space, capitalizing the word void just as the scripture did. Perhaps then it's not Ion sustaining the pool anymore, but rather Yaldaboth herself set to return from the void. That would of course be a fairly big issue for the Foundation and humanity as a whole, as there aren't too many individuals like the Grand Karsist wandering around to send it back into the void. There's no doubt that this is just part of an ongoing story, so we'll likely see what comes of the whole situation, and of course Cain and Abel will almost certainly be at the forefront of it.